Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is a, a chapter that deals largely with the assurance of God's work in our lives. Uh, in Romans 7, Paul talks about the struggle that we feel. And it, it could be that as we get to that struggle, we begin to feel where is God and what's going on. Is, is there's a powerful force at work in us that wants to do that which God likes. But there's also a powerful force and habit in us the sinful nature that remains, that is resisting God and still in rebellion. And, and it feels like war. Uh, in Romans 8, we see some of the tools that we have, the promise that there's no condemnation in Christ, the work of the Spirit to put sin to death, the message and witness of the Spirit that we have God's favor and that we're His children and that we have access to Him. And then in what are, I'm sure, very popular verses among many of you, Romans 8, 28 to 30, we see that the purpose of God throughout all of our life is that you and I would be fully conformed to the image of Christ. That He is causing everything that happens in your life to move you toward that purpose. And He starts with these words, verse 28, and we know. It's an assuring verse. We know this. Something to give us endurance and, and stamina in the race that's marked out before us to run with faith to Christ Jesus. Uh, that These words might assure us today and, and fill our hearts with confidence in God. Let's pray together before we read it. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would assure us with your gospel of grace, that we would hear the words that are written and preserved for us, inspired by you through the Apostle Paul, that we might be nourished in our confidence in the Lord Jesus to rest in Him and to receive from Him the salvation of our souls and the salvation of our bodies and the promise of eternal life from Him. We do pray that You would work in us today, that You would be pleased by what happens here, and that You would cause Your church uh, to flourish in faith and repentance, that You would receive all the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 8, verse 28, this is God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called... He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is God's Word. It's completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. Jimmy Johnson was, uh, uh, well, he is a famous uh, football coach. Coached uh, to the point where he was inducted to the College Football Hall of Fame. Coached the Miami Hurricanes to a national championship in the late 80s uh, in I think 1989, he moved to the pros, coached the Dallas Cowboys, won two championships there. He was, uh, without a doubt, one of the most successful coaches ever. Only two men have ever won championships in college and in the pros. He's one of those two men. Now, he left college in 1989. In January of 1990, his divorce from his wife was finalized. And one uh, 
fairly cynical interpretation of that was that uh, he needed a, a wife and, and family for some of the social events in college settings. It wasn't necessary in the pros, and so he simply discarded them because his new purpose was, college, was, was pro football. In other words, they served a purpose, his college pro, uh, you know, coaching. He served a purpose. They didn't serve a purpose in pros, so he wasn't needed. Now, I hope that's, I really hope that's just too cynical. But if you look, the, the rates of, of, well, good relationships and, and family success among these elite pro coaches is actually pretty low. Uh, they devote themselves to this work of coaching teams, and it takes away from everything else in life. And because they are so driven for that one purpose, uh, everything else falls away. It happens a lot. I want to tell you another story. This is completely different, so hold on. I'll, I'll try to link them in a minute. This is a story that's fiction, and it was told by Tennessee Williams. Tennessee Williams tells the story of a man named Jacob Brodsky. His father owned a bookstore and wanted his son to go to college. Jacob didn't want to go to college. He just wanted to marry his childhood sweetheart. Her name was Lila. And, uh, no pressure. And, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's uh, Tennessee Williams' names. Now, uh, the story is that he decides to do what his father wanted to do. He goes off to college. But his father gets ill pretty soon and dies. Jacob returns back home to take over the bookstore, and now free from his father's expectations, he marries Lila. But she didn't want the small store life, the little life that the bookstore could give him. She had more ambitions. And, and so when she's discovered by an agent, she gets a musical career, and her husband says, you have to choose between me or the, and the store and this musical life you want. She chooses to leave. He takes a key out and he hands it to her and says, keep this with you. It's a key to the store. Because when you find out that this life is, that you're going for is really empty, I want you to come back to where you're loved. Well, she takes off. She has a career for 15 years, but sure enough, at the end of 15 years, she discovers this isn't what she really wanted. It doesn't fill her, and she misses the love that she had. So she returns back to the bookstore. Meanwhile, Jacob Brodsky, uh, because of the pain he felt when she left, retreated into his books the way others might retreat into alcohol or drugs. And so his life shrinks to only, you know, helping customers that come in his store, eating, sleeping, and reading books. It's the only thing he ever does. And one day, when Lila finally comes back, she enters the store, he sees her and assumes she's a customer and says, how can I help you? Well, she's a little hurt that he doesn't recognize her, but she says, I've, I've got, I'm looking for a book, and, and I've forgotten the name. Here's the story. And he, she tells the story of them. And, and she recounts it and, uh, of how an ambitious girl left the one who loved her, and, and, and then she wants to come back. He looks confused, and he says, you know, the story of Jacob and Lila? He says, oh, I think we might have that over here by Tolstoy. And she's so crushed that she leaves in tears. He doesn't know what happened, so he retreats to his book. You want to say thanks, Tennessee Williams, for that really uplifting story. The, the picture of, of those two stories. One, 
is a man whose purpose controls his life. Jimmy Johnson. But it wreaks havoc everywhere else because it wasn't a good purpose. The other is one who has a good purpose, loving a spouse, but who doesn't follow through. In order for it to really work, you have to have a good purpose and the follow-through. What this passage says about God is that He has a good purpose for you and He has the follow-through to carry it out. And so you can trust Him. I I want you to see what that looks like in this passage. I want to ask three questions. What is God's purpose for you? Two, what is the extent of God's purpose for you? And what is the end of God's purpose for you? What is God's purpose for you? You can see it in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For, here's the purpose, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That is God's purpose for you, is that you would become like Christ, that you would be restored to the image of God and you would reflect Him perfectly. We read in Genesis 1 that God said, let us make man in our image. And He made man to reflect God and it was a pure and great reflection until Adam rebelled. And it's as if the mirror that reflected God had been broken and now it was distorted. And God is now saying, I have resolved to take you who have trusted in my Son and mend the mirror. I'm going to make you reflect Him perfectly. I'm going to form you into that image that you would reflect His character, that you would reflect His heart, that you would reflect His holiness and His godliness. But you would also reflect Him in being loved by God. This is interesting here. For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined. If we take the word foreknow to mean things that God knew in advance, whom did God not foreknow? That would be everyone. Every individual, God saw their life. He was omniscient. He knew everything about them. So how could there be some that aren't then conformed to the image of Christ? How could there be some who don't receive all the benefits listed in this passage? Foreknow must mean something different. And you can find it in a few other passages. Let me give just a couple of examples. In Matthew 7, there are those who are knocking at the door of heaven and they're saying, let us in. We did all these great things for you. And here's what Jesus says to them. Depart from me. I never knew you. How is it that Jesus didn't know them? It's that he didn't know them in the way that we would say the same word. You know this guy, I really, he's my friend. I know him well. The idea of knowledge is someone who is intimate and related. To put it in, uh, well, this is the Bible's language. It says Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's a description of an intimate, loving knowledge. And so when we see those whom God foreknew, the Bible is saying this, those whom God loved in advance, those whom God set his passionate, intimate unending, steadfast love upon long ago. And those whom he loved, he predestined, he set the destiny for their lives, that the the place where they would end up, their destination, would be 
like Christ. And so this is his goal for you, that you would be like Christ in every way. Remember, we've, we've seen in, in Romans 8 that we're called children, that the Spirit of God teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father, that we're adopted. Well, now we're seeing that he wants us to look like our older brother, the Lord Jesus, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers, it says at the end of verse 29. That, that he'd be the firstborn among many brothers. He doesn't just want us to be in the family, but bear the family resemblance. That's God's purpose for you. Now I want you to see what the extent of that purpose is. He wants you to be like Christ. And he says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That all things must work together for God's good purpose in your life. That's pretty extensive. It covers every aspect of your life. God is causing every detail of your life to move you toward that purpose he has. Now, the, that's sort of easy to say. What does it mean in, in really practical terms? Well, it changes everything. It means that you begin to look at every good thing that happens in your life, every pleasant thing, and you say, this pleasant thing is from God, and so it causes you to give thanks, to live gratefully, to enjoy them, but not to enjoy them as, as things we live for, but to recognize them as pointers to the God who gives you grace, who gives you good things to enjoy, and says, use these good things to become like Christ. It helps us see that the good things that we get are not the end themselves. And so we recognize them to be something God is using. But it changes even maybe more so how we see the unpleasant things, the bitter things, the suffering that we must bear. It says that God is using that, all things, every pain, every sorrow, every disappointment in God's hand is working in your life for your good, to conform you to Christ. And, and so you can open your hand and receive both the good and the hard that which makes you smile and that which makes you weep from the hand of God and say, with hope, you are using these things to make me like Jesus. Everything. Let me put this in yet a, a, a more concrete way. When Karen and I were in, at seminary, we saw a, a number of people who really wanted to have children and others who could have them quickly and easily. And, and, you know, did God love one or, or, or the other? No. He gave them what they needed for their good. We saw some who had trouble making financial end meet and, and others who uh, did just fine and still others still who had outside sources of income so they could just devote themselves to study and, and not worry about uh, money at all. I remember knowing a couple of those and, and feeling this envy well up in my heart going, I, that's, that's what I want to do. But I wasn't given that. Did God love them more than he loved me? Or did he give me what I needed for my good? You see, that's what this scripture is saying. That as you look around, you see all these different circumstances, people who are living their lives, and you say, you know, it's not fair. They're getting stuff I want. Or as you 
look at yourself and you say, I've got these things and somebody else doesn't. What's going on? You look here and you say, in the wisdom of God, He's given me what we need for our good. He's given them what they need for their good. And this is a promise that can be claimed by Christians, but not by everyone. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are calling according to His purpose. This isn't something that can be said for every single person. Only those who love God and only those who are called according to His purpose can claim this promise. I know you've heard it said by plenty of people from all sorts of religious faiths and, or, or even non-religious. They'll say stuff like this. Everything happens for a reason. Only the Christian can claim that that reason is their good. God has set His love on you so that He will make you like Christ. That's the good that He wants to do. To fill you with the joy that Christ had. To fill you with the life that Christ had. To fill you with the, all of the character and holiness that Christ had. That's the good purpose. And everything in your life without exception, must work toward that purpose because God is doing it. So what's the end of this purpose? His purpose is your Christ-likeness. The extent is every aspect of your life. What's the end? Look at verse 30. He says, Those whom He foreknew, the ones He set His love upon from the beginning, He predestined. And then those he predestined, he called. The ones he'd set the destiny and, and said, here's where you are going, he called them into that path. He pursued them. He knew how to get to them with the gospel. He sent missionaries. You remember the scene in Acts where there is an Ethiopian eunuch who is riding in a chariot and who's reading from the book of Isaiah? You see... God had said, Philip, I want you to go over there. He had sent Philip because he knew this Ethiopian eunuch was one he has called, and so he sent the man there. When Philip got there, he saw him. He says, do you know what you're reading? The man said, no, tell me. And so they began to explain the gospel, and when he was done, Philip was called away to somewhere else. God knew that Ethiopian's need, and he had predestined that Ethiopian to, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so he called him. He sent the man and called him. And here's what this means for you. God knows how to get to you. God knows how to get to you and to get you on the path that leads to the destiny he set. God knows how to reach you in your need. He knows how to get beyond your doubts. He knows how to shore you up where you are weak. God calls. He pursues he persuades his cause, the one that, that gets you to say, okay, I can see this. His cause, the one that helps you look at this and say, I want this life. It's his call that persuades you and enables you to believe. And when you believe, it says, those he called, he also justified. Justified has been what most of the book of Romans has been about, that God would declare our sins forgiven because of what Christ has done. And he would declare you righteous because of what Christ has done. He knows how to make you fit for him. He doesn't just justify you, though. 
Those he justified, he also glorified. Glorified is the idea of, of a completed, confirmed glory. Well, we started with this idea that we'd be conformed to the image of Christ, like a mirror that reflects the, the glory of God. Now you are that perfect mirror that reflects the glory perfectly. You're glorified. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't feel glorified yet. And the truth is, we're not. Why does Paul use this past tense? Why does he say you, he also glorified and not he will glorify? Is because he is saying it is so sure. You know, something like this. Uh, a wife says to her husband, will you take this package and mail it for me? And the husband says, consider it done. God is saying, of your salvation, consider it done. Augustus' top lady was much more poetic than I could be. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. No fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yes and amen and never was forfeited yet. These things, future nor things that are now, nor all things below or above can make him his purpose forego. Or sever my soul from his love. My name, from the palm of his hand, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains. It marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, this glorified spirit's in heaven. Did you catch that last line? It's so brilliant. This glorified saints in heaven might be more happy, but they are not more secure than you who trust in Christ today. Your glorification is so sure that Paul already speaks of it in past tense. God will complete what he started. And so his purpose is that you will be made like Christ. The extent of that purpose is that it will extend to every second and every moment of your life. All things must work together toward that purpose. And the end is that he will complete what he has started. Yes and amen are his promises. At uh, RYM this week, I was speaking to a group of folks uh, about how we grow in Christ. And I, I asked the boys in the class, junior high boys, and I said, let's suppose you all were playing basketball for a team and somehow you knew the future. Whether it was some fortune teller that you knew got it right, a prophet, or you had a time travel machine, I don't know, but you know the future. You're on a team, and you know you're going to win the game by eight points. Would you still play? And they all said, of course we would still play. We'd look forward to it. Well, what would happen if you knew you were going to win by eight points, and you got down by 30 in the first quarter? They said, we'd keep playing. Because we knew we were still going to win. It would just make the victory all that much sweeter. I'm paraphrasing here. It would just make the victory that much sweeter. Listen, if you know that God is going to glorify you and make you like Christ, then you keep going no matter what obstacle gets in the way. You endure to the end because you know how it's going to end. 
take hope, take assurance. And we know. And we know that for those who love God, all things have to work together for His good purposes. His good purposes are unchangeable. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would convince us of your unchangeable purpose and that you would give us the courage to trust it, to lean on your purposes, to know they are good, and then to, to endure until those purposes are fulfilled in us for Christ's glory and honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.